This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. A guest speaker is featured on this message. Open your Bibles to Revelation 5, please. And if you're a guest this morning, I met one already, I particularly want to welcome you. By the way, I love the building. The building is just primo. It's just great. Uh, Yeah, so isn't God good? Uh, I grew up in a religious tradition where week after week, I would uh, see prominently displayed at the front of the, the room a cross with the body of Christ hanging on it. And I remember looking up at that image in different places, different times, and, and experiencing a variety of emotions. Sometimes I would just feel sad that Jesus had to go through so much suffering. And then other times I'd be inspired by Jesus' example of laying down his life, and, and I'd resolve to, to be more humble and more sacrificial and give up more things for Lent and, and try and help more people. And I just thought if, people, if Jesus sacrificed that much for me, I should sacrifice something for him. And then other times I, I just sit there wondering, no, what? I wonder why the artist chose to like, portray Jesus that way. And I, I just get in this little artistic evaluation of what was happening. But much of the time, I was completely unaware of and unaffected this image of Jesus on the cross, even though it was right in front of me every Sunday just kind of blended into the stained glass windows and the the stone floors and the wooden pews, just just became part of the furniture. I think when it comes to the meetings of the church, what we do, what we're doing here right now, corporate worship, congregational worship, many people go through something like what I experienced growing up. They don't quite know what to do with the cross. (laughs) We talk a lot about the cross. They don't quite know what to do with it. They're, sometimes they're confused about what it means. Sometimes they think, well, that's good, that's good, but let's just move on to like more important stuff. Or sometimes they just ignore, ignore it. Now, if you're a member of Grace Church and you've been here a while, you might be thinking, well, that's not us. This is Grace Church. We sing about the cross We preach about the cross. We talk about the cross. We get the cross. Amen. Amen. Well, (laughs) maybe not. (laughs) But I appreciate that response. Here's one of the greatest temptations for those who are familiar with the cross. It's to become dull to it and the one who hung on it to lose our amazement. Grace doesn't seem so amazing anymore. It just seems ordinary. It just seems blasé. It just seems really mundane. We can become complacent, unaffected, even, even professional about what Jesus did on the cross. Now, To be clear, when I'm talking about the cross, I'm not talking about the wood. I'm not talking about an icon. The cross is a biblical way of speaking about 
who Jesus is and what he accomplished through his death at Calvary. It takes into account who it was on the cross, Jesus Christ. We sang some about this earlier. The son of God who existed in glory with the father and the spirit before time began, who came to earth as a man, who lived a life of perfect obedience to his father, who died in our place, who was raised from the dead, who ascended to his father's right hand, is now interceding for us and is one day returning for those who redeemed. All that is included when we talk about the cross. Because at the center of everything I just mentioned is Christ's substitutionary death on the cross as the sacrificial lamb of God. What does God's word tell us about Jesus' sacrifice as the lamb and what it means for our worship? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. What should the effect on us be? What does it mean that Jesus is called the lamb of God? If you're taking notes, this morning's message is called Worshiping and Loving the Lamb of God. Now, rather than trying to answer those questions from my experiences growing up, we're going to turn to someone else's experiences. We're going to turn to the experiences of the apostle John. John was a disciple of Jesus who walked with him, ate with him, spoke with him, and yet John also experienced a vision of Jesus after he had risen and had been glorified. And he wrote about what he saw in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. This morning, we're going to focus on chapter 5. And what we're going to see is this. If I was going to sum it up, it's at the heart of God-honoring worship is the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. At the heart of God-honoring worship is the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. The exaltation of Jesus and what he did at the cross. What Jesus did on that cross is not peripheral to what we do here. It's not optional. It's at the very heart of our relationship with God. And I think many of us here know that. We're nodding our heads. Yes, that's right, that's right. We even share it with others but we don't necessarily live in the good of it. We've lost our wonder. We've lost our amazement. Because we can sing all the right things about the cross and fail to understand it and love the one who hung on it. And that's not what God intends. So before we read Revelation 5, I just want to share a few words about Revelation. Have you done a series on Revelation? Great. Chapters two and three. Okay, great. You might have heard some of this. Revelation's a pretty confusing book for a lot of people. It's, it's filled with beasts and angels and living creatures and lightning and thunder. We sang about the earlier prophecies and visions. Yeah, it's just a little overwhelming. You know, someone says, I just want to find out what the Bible's about. And they start a revelation. They're going, what? What in the world? This is like Lord of the Rings. This is, this is amazing. X-Men has nothing on this. This is, 
I mean, it's that kind of book, so it can be a little intimidating. Now, other Christians see the book of Revelation as an exact description of how future events are going to unfold. And our job is to crack the code. And we have movies about this. Uh, you, they might be enjoyable, but I just wouldn't commend them to you. Um, the book's much better. The book's much better than the movie. God gave us the book of Revelation so that we could see the world from his perspective. We get caught up in how we view the world. God wants to see things from his perspective. So he gave us the book of Revelation so we could see what's happening behind the scenes both now and in the age to come and be encouraged by that. So we could know that in the midst of all the tragedy and the trials and the bad things that are happening in our country and in the world, God's in control and he knows how it all works out. That's what Revelation is supposed to do for us. So at the beginning of chapter four, which we read some of, read some this morning, John's taken up into the throne room of heaven. He walks through an open door. He beholds God seated on the throne. And around him, he hears the angels, the living creatures, rather, constantly crying out. We we, we read it this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in response, the elders are saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. Now, the fact that that God created everything and rules over everything and everything was created for his pleasure and by his will is enough to fill us with mystery and wonder and awe and we could worship God for those things forever. But Revelation doesn't end at chapter four. There's a lot more. God has a lot more to show John and he has a lot more to show us. So I'm gonna read chapter five. And let's hear this as the word of God. It's infallible, it's inerrant, it's authoritative, but it also is God's encouragement to us. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. (coughs) And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he 
can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I just want to pray for a moment. Father, help us to see what you want us to see in this passage. Open our eyes and open our hearts to understand in a fresh way why you have created us and redeemed us to love and worship the lamb who was slain. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Between chapters four and chapters five, we have this shift of scene. The scene shifts from the one seated on the throne to the lamb. But it might be more accurate to say that the lamb is added to the picture because it doesn't really shift. The lamb is just added. And in this passage, we're, we see at least three reasons why Jesus and his sacrifice as the lamb of God is at the heart of God honoring worship. Here's the first reason. Jesus, the lamb who was slain, is the means of our worship. The means of our worship. 
We read about this scroll in the first few verses of chapter five. It's it's a little unfamiliar to us. You picture just, you know, wound up paper and parchment and something's written on the inside and and the outside, both sides, and it's sealed and no one can open it. Lots of scrolls existed at this time when this was written, but it wasn't an ordinary scroll. It contained the outworking of God's purposes for history. And as the seals are broken in the following chapters, God's plans for history unfold. Everything that God intended happens because the seals on the scroll were broken. So the symbolic importance of that scroll being opened is massive. Commentator Greg Beale says this book or this scroll is best understood as containing God's plan of judgment and redemption, which has been set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection, but has yet to be completed. Another commentator, William Hendrickson, adds, the closed scroll indicates the plan of God unrevealed and unexecuted. Listen to this. If that scroll remains sealed, God's purposes are not realized. His plan is not carried out. To open that scroll by breaking the seals means not merely to reveal, but to actually carry out God's plan. So, in other words, if if the scroll's not opened, humanity is doomed. We'll be unable to worship God because he will be unable to deliver us. And the one who opens the scroll has the power to bring about what is going to happen for the rest of time. So if the scroll remains sealed, history remains directionless, as a lot of people in our culture think it already is. God's people have no hope of victory. Our enemies will never be defeated, and in the end, God's purposes will not be achieved. So it's a little clearer now why in verse four, John writes, and I began to weep loudly. He understood why the scroll needed to be opened. And they had just said that no one could open the scroll. Eternity hangs in the balance as they're looking for someone who can open the scroll. Someone who is worthy enough to open the scroll and carry out God's plans for history. So they look in heaven. Surely you'd think they'd find someone in heaven. They don't find anybody. They look on the earth. All over the earth, they don't find anybody. They look under the earth, alluding to those who have died. Maybe it's someone who's already been here. Maybe they can open the scroll. Nope. Maybe they move on to like spiritual powers and authorities, angelic beings. They search every person who has ever lived, whoever will live. They find no one. But then an elder says to John, weep no more. Weep no more. We found someone. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, verse five, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Someone has been found worthy enough to open the scroll. Lots of celebration. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, 
which in our day and age doesn't mean a lot. (laughs) Really? The lion of the tribe of Judah? Sounds big, sounds powerful. The root of David? Not so much. The root of David. Well, those, those were Old Testament references. Both terms or phrases were connected to Old Testament concepts of power and authority and royalty. And you, you think if, if, if someone said, this is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, you'd be thinking, okay, like this, this amazing military ruler who's, who's going to fight against those who oppose God, and they're going to s- destroy him. You see him decked out in armor, towering over the enemies, You're the lion of the tribe of Judah. So John turns to see the mighty warrior. And I saw a lamb. That's what he sees. And not only that, he seems he's a lamb looking as though it had been slain. So we're not talking like a strong lamb. We're talking like a lamb that had been slain but is now alive. That's the one who's worthy to open the scroll. And that lamb is Jesus. Jesus is referred to as a lamb 34 times in the New Testament. 29 of those times are in the book of Revelation. You think that's important to God? Seems to be. It's a striking and unusual choice. In his commentary on Revelation, J.P. Love says, none but an inspired composer of heavenly visions would ever have thought of it. When earthbound men want symbols of power, they conjure up mighty beasts and birds of prey. Russia elevates the bear, Britain, the lion, France, the tiger, the United States, the spread eagle, all of them ravenous. It is only the kingdom of heaven that would dare to use as its symbol of might not the lion for which John was looking, but the helpless lamb. And at that, a slain lamb. (laughs) John goes on to say, this lamb looking as though it had been slain had seven horns with seven eyes. Now as we read that, we're not thinking, we shouldn't be thinking, when I get home, I'm going to try and draw that out. I'm just going to see what, like try and figure out what John saw. This is, this is what God often does in scripture to communicate to us. It's theology in pictures. It's symbolic. In the Old Testament, the horn is a symbol of strength. And seven is the number of perfection or completion. So one who has seven horns possesses perfect and complete strength. And someone who has seven eyes means that he knows everything perfectly and completely. So this lamb, what we're meant to get from that is this this lamb is all-powerful and all-knowing, and he's been slain. Just, that's a disconnect. He's now alive, but he... But he was slain. The marks of him being slain are, are still there. And we don't know what John saw, whether it was a slit across the throat or blood on the wall. We don't know. But in verse 9, we're told that it's because he was slain 
that he was found worthy to open the scroll. That's the connection. Jesus and his work on the cross is our means of seeing God's purposes fulfilled, both in history and for our lives. Evil will be vanquished and God will have a people who will worship him forever because the lamb was slain. Now, hundreds of thousands of lambs have been slain before Jesus came as the Lamb of God. In the centuries before Christ, Jewish priests would offer at least 1,093 lambs every year. It's a lot of lambs. For their own sins and the sins of the people. Every day, morning and night, plus special days, year after year, century after century, the priests kept offering up the lambs and they could never take away sins. But then Jesus came, the one that John the Baptist calls the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he offered up his life as a sacrifice that will never be repeated, never be improved upon, never be added to, never be made better. Through his once and for all sacrifice on the cross, Jesus, the Lamb of God, has entered the heavenly sanctuary to make full atonement for the sins of anyone who trusts in him and to tear down the wall that separated us from God. And just a few chapters later in Revelation 7, we see untold thousands clothed in white robes worshiping God and the Lamb. And we read, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Only in heaven can you wash your clothes in blood and they come out white. Only in heaven. In other words, they own their righteous standing before God entirely to the cross of Christ, to the blood he shed for them. Apart from Christ's finished work, we would have no means of approaching God. We, 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 wouldn't, we wouldn't even get close to God. No one was worthy to open the scroll in heaven or on earth or in the sea or under the earth. No one but the lamb and that lamb was slain. He is the means by which we draw near to God. Through him and him alone, God's justice that we deserved, fully satisfied. And we can be completely forgiven. Jesus' work on the cross as the lamb of God is the means by which we worship God. Number two, Jesus, the lamb who was slain, is the content of our worship. He's not only the means, he's the content. We sang Revelation song earlier. It's a beautiful song, blessed millions throughout the world. Just a wonderful combination of lyric and melody that helps us anticipate that time when we will pour out our hearts in devotion to the lamb around the throne. It's a a beautiful, massively popular song sung throughout the world. I met met the uh, writer, Jenny Lee Riddle, sweet, sweet lady. I think she's in Texas. If Jenny had asked me, though, if, if for any suggestions, she didn't. 
But if she did, I would have just made one. And um, I don't know if you'd be able to fit it in or not, but Revelation song talks about the lamb who was slain. And it's a great song to sing. But it never gets specific about what the lamb accomplished, what actually happened. The view of the lamb becomes more stunning and worship producing when we understand why he died. Because that's what the living creatures and the elders around the throne are singing. And they sang a new song, verse nine. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Heavenly worship centers around what Jesus' work on the cross accomplished. And they're very clear about what it accomplished. Jesus didn't die as a mere example. As I alluded to earlier, wow, what a sacrifice. We should sacrifice too. He wasn't a martyr dying for a good cause. He wasn't the unfortunate victim of his circumstances. He he tried to do good, it just didn't work out. No, no, no. Jesus willingly died on the cross to achieve something. He died to make something happen. And by his blood, we're told, he ransomed or purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He paid a price, his own life, to ransom us to God. Which raises a question, what did he ransom us from? What what do we need to be ransomed from? You know, when you hear the word ransom today, it's usually you pay a ransom to someone who's kidnapped someone and they give you that person back. So, So who's the ransom being paid to? Well, the Bible isn't that clear on that. God's judgment meant we were objects of his wrath. God's law condemned us. The devil held us captive Sin enslaved us. We were sorry. We were in a sorry state. We needed a deliverer. We needed to be ransomed. So God provided one. Jesus dying on the cross is our ransom. But how did that happen? I want you to turn over to the book of Colossians, a few books to the left, chapter two, where we learn how Jesus dying on the cross ransomed us and freed us. Colossians 2, verse 13, Paul writes, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus triumphed over the powers of evil by canceling the record of debt that was against us, by removing the judgment against us. 
We owed something to God. We owed him our obedience. We owed him our love. We owed him our devotion. And we didn't give him any of it. Jesus did. And when he died on the cross, he paid our debt. And the resurrection, Jesus being raised from the dead, that was the vindication that he really paid the debt. It's kind of like when you're in a store and you're using your debit card and you run it through the machine and there's that little bit of time where you're just, you're just waiting to see, is it going to go through? Is it going to go through? Yes, it went through. Okay, yeah, I knew it was going to go through. It's, it's that time. You, it was paid for when the card went through the machine. The approved, that little, <laughs> it comes, oh, yes, good. When that comes up, you're just, yeah, I knew, I knew it was going through. Um, that's just saying, yeah, it was there. The debt was paid. Well, that's what the resurrection was. It was God's amen to Jesus' full payment of our ransom. But it was on the cross that Jesus triumphed. Because Satan can no longer accuse us or try to condemn us for sins that have already been paid for. That's great news. It's why we sing, and I think we're going to sing this later. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. How did that happen? For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's how it happened. That's why we sing that song. And that's what the hosts of heaven choose to worship Jesus for. That's the content of their worship. Now, they've picked a lot of things to worship Jesus for. His wisdom. He was really wise. His beauty, his authority, his power, his healing abilities, his selflessness, his sovereignty, his love. And, and we should worship Jesus for all of those things. But what's the content of the song they're singing in heaven? By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Philippians 2 says that it's because Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross, that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You are highly exalted, name above all names, worthy of all praise. We just sang it a few minutes ago. Nothing impresses God more than the sacrificial substitutionary death of his son. And nothing should impress us more either. We want to be like the father who looks at his son and says, look at what he did. He left his throne in glory to rescue those who had rebelled against God. He did it for love. He did it for mercy. He did it for the sake of his name. He did it for justice. The father's impressed. 
we should be impressed too. And that helps us understand why worship, when we gather, is a response to what God has done and not an effort to get God to do something. It's, it's right when we come together to expect God to be working in our midst, to think, well, I wonder how God's going to meet us today. I wonder how he's going to make us aware of his presence. I wonder how he's going to work in our hearts. That's right. That's good. But how often do we forget as we walk in that God has already done something? He's already accomplished something. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. (laughs) Jesus, the lamb, has triumphed. So we speak and we sing about what Jesus has done through his work on the cross as the lamb of God. Through his death on the cross, he has endured our punishment. He's satisfied the wrath of God. He's paid our debt to God. He's delivered us from hell. He's overcome Satan. He's justified us before God. He's brought us into God's family. He's given us peace with God. He secured our eternal joy with God. Praise the lamb who was slain. That's why what he has done as the lamb of God forms the content of our worship. It's so amazing. And we will be praising him for eternity for it. Number three. Jesus, the lamb of who was slain, is not only the means of our worship, he's not only meant to be the content of our worship, he is the object of our worship. The five heavenly songs in Revelation 4 and 5, there are five songs, that make it, they make it clear that we not only worship God for what Jesus has done, we worship Jesus himself for what he has done. Now, all of us are going to think, of course we do. We're Christians. Of course we worship Jesus. But to the early Christians, that would have been a revolutionary thought. That would have been a real shocker. Because the Jewish scriptures taught there's only one God who is worthy of worship. And yet, While John never directly calls Jesus God, what he does is he ascribes names to God and then he ascribes those same names to Jesus. So God is the one who was and is and is to come. And later on we read that Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come. God is the Alpha and the Omega. Later on we read that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. God is the first and the last And Jesus is the first and the last. In Revelation 4.10, we read that the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And in the last song of chapter 5, we read, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And back in Revelation 5 verse 8, it's the elders falling down before the lamb. We sold our house that we were living in a, a year ago, I think, and uh, a guy came by to appraise the, the value of the house. And it turns out he was a Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe he's something else. And so we had a friendly conversation. And rather than going to John 1 or various passages, we, I just said, you know what? Tell me what you think this means. It's, read that for me, Revelation 5, 13. 
It says, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I said, why, why do you think the lamb is getting blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever? He said, well, do you have another translation? And I said, well, yeah, well, yeah, let's look at yours. So we looked at the New World Translation, and you know what? It said the exact same thing. You know why? Because God doesn't want us to miss this. He doesn't want us to, to be cloudy on this. The one on the throne receives worship, and the lamb receives worship. He is to be praised. And in all the praise of Jesus that's happening in heaven, the hosts of heaven never lose sight of the fact that it is the lamb who was slain. Yes, he is triumphant. Yes, he is the conqueror. Yes, he's risen from the dead. He's the king. He's the Lord of lords. He's the ruler of all. He's the bright and morning star. He is the holy one, the true one. He's the faithful and true witness. But he will always be the one who died and came to life. The lamb who was slain and is now raised from the dead. And for that reason, brothers and sisters, he deserves our unending, loud, joyful, grateful worship. It's not because we feel like it. It's not because we've been doing our devotions this week. It's not because we're healthy and just feeling good. It's because he's worthy. So here's the point of what I'm sharing this morning. Does Jesus have your loud, joyful, grateful worship? Does your amazement at the Lamb of God dying in your place fill you with wonder and awe? So much wonder and awe that you can even picture yourself thanking him forever. I was talking to someone recently who said, you know, when I think about eternity, I, I, I kind of get afraid. I, I just kind of get fearful. I just don't know what it's going to be like. Well, what it's going to be like is it's just finding more things to worship Jesus for in dying in our place and seeing it from new perspectives. Oh, I didn't see that. Oh, I didn't see that. Talking, telling each other, did you see that? And just being filled with increasing awe and joy and amazement and astonishment that somehow we got included. (laughs) Is your love for the lamb who was slain so all-consuming that it overshadows all other loves? Or does something else have our heart? Because we're not about religion here. We're not about just going to church. We're about loving Jesus Christ and it affecting everything about us and loving him more than anything else, more than our reputation. Willing to have people think ill of us or badly of us because we love Jesus more. We love him more than our career willing to make job choices based on the fact that I can be in a good church or that, that I, I can't do that because that would go against my love for Jesus. 
Do we, we can love our family more than Jesus. Our hobbies, our sports, music, even our ministry. People can love their ministry more than they love the one they're telling people about. But none of those things is a savior. None of those things will deliver us. None of those things will satisfy us. None of those things is worthy of our undying devotion, affection, and obedience. But the lamb who was slain is. He is. So in your fight against sin, don't run away from the lamb. Run to him. He bore all our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and be healed. That's why I died. In your fight against discouragement and fear, don't ignore the lamb. Look to him. Knowing, First Peter says, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And in your suffering, I know there are people suffering here. Don't think that God doesn't know what you're going through or how to sustain you or how to bring you through because Jesus was slain in your place and he endured unimaginable pain, unimaginable pain so that we would never have to. His sacrifice ensures that our trials aren't meaningless, but they have a purpose. And one day, it's gonna be the lamb who wipes away every tear from our eyes. Brothers and sisters, there'll come a day when nothing will distract us, nothing will seem more important, nothing will seem more fascinating, nothing will be more amazing than gazing upon the face of Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb, our savior. And if there is doubt in your heart as to whether you will see that day, whether you will have that amazement, if you have trusted in Christ to forgive your sins, to pay the debt that you owed, Jesus Christ, through his death, has ensured it can be no other way. That is your destiny. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, I implore you and encourage you with all my heart to not seek to get to God on your own merits, in your own way, through your own efforts, because you will not. Doesn't matter how many services you've been to, how many times you've read your Bible, how many times you've prayed, what feelings you have. There's only one way of getting to God and it's through the lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ, who is the means of our worship. He's the content of our worship and he's the one we worship. So if you have questions about that, please speak to Craig, myself, just someone near you. I want to help you with that, that decision. And so, to the one on the throne and to the Lamb, be all blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.